We're in Revelation chapter 17. We have six chapters left. My prayer is by the end of February that we will finish these six chapters, or first of March, we'll finish these six chapters, and I can send this material off and get it printed into a book, and um, then make it available to you so you can have all of these notes and not just some of these notes. Uh, chapters 17 and 18 deal with Babylon during the tribulation period, and they explain the city in two different ways. We're going to look today at chapter 17, and that's about Babylon as a religious political system. When we get to chapter 18, that's primarily concerned with the commercial and economic aspects of the system. But we're looking tonight at chapter 17, and that's where you see this religious political system. Uh, there's a religion that rides politics to power, and it's the Antichrist using religion to accomplish his purposes. Uh, and it's called Babylon here. Uh, originally, the city of Babylon, it was founded by Nimrod. Uh, he wanted to thwart the plan of God. He began to build that tower, as you remember. He didn't want people to spread out all over the face of the earth, but that was all in disobedience to God. And what you discover is that the name Babylon throughout the Bible often is synonymous with rebellion against God. Uh, it's synonymous with anti-God influences. And so when we read about Babylon here in chapter 17 and 18, you're reading about an end-time world system. Tonight, we're looking at the political religious aspects of that system. Next week, we'll look at the commercial and economic aspects of that system. But that's how all of this uh, political power and religious uh, power comes about during the seven years of the tribulation period. This end-time Babylon may be, may be, a completely rebuilt city on the Euphrates River where ancient Babylon was once located. Or, or it may be symbolic of another prominent city during the end times. Would you like to take a guess? Babylon then would be being used as a code word. And, of course, that city we're talking about, the potential of that city would be Rome. So Babylon could either be a rebuilt city along the Euphrates, or it could be a code word for Rome. My estimation, as you're going to find out through here, is that this is a rebuilt city. Uh, while there's a much about Rome that I dislike, and there's a lot of that formalism and a lot of the dress that they wear and the things that they do that you're going to see is very similar to what we're going to read about with this religious political Babylon, uh, the fact of the matter is it seems to me, and I'll point that out as we go through here, uh, that this Babylon has to be the city along the Euphrates River. We begin in chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came. You remember those? We have, we've had seven judgments uh, with the opening of the seals. We've had seven judgments uh, with the trumpets that were blown. We had seven judgments that were bowl judgments. Now, one of those angels that was a part of the bowls, the bowl judgments, came and talked with me, saying... Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Uh, this woman, here called a great har harlot, is not only a harlot herself, but what we're going to learn is that she's the mother of harlots. Chapter 17, verse 5, we'll learn that in just a few minutes. She's the mother of harlots. In other words, she spawns others that are just like her. Um, 
They're going to be just as wicked as herself. These other religious systems that are just as wicked as herself. This is a graphic reference that illustrates the apostasy and the politicized nature of the religious system of the end times. Did you know that there'll not only be a political, uh, a political Babylon, there'll be a religious Babylon. Uh, religion and politics will work together to enable the Antichrist to rise to power and to seize the hearts and minds of people until he overthrows that religious system and sets himself up as God to be ruled. Verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth, this great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So what is she doing? She's alluring people into her control. Uh, she's seducing the world governments, world religions to come under her power and under her authority. The power of this religious system is evident from its political alliances with the kings of the earth. Now, I believe in the separation of church and state. I don't believe that most today uh, interpret it the way our fathers intended it to be. But there is a danger of religion and politics becoming too closely aligned with one another. And this political religious Babylon of the tribulation period is the prime example of the dangers that can happen when they marry one another. They become a part of one another. Uh, this religious practice, this religious system uh, will have practices that compromise with the world. This religious system will minimize biblical truth during the first half of the tribulation. The Antichrist and his confederacy of nations will destroy the harlot ultimately so that he can set himself up. Remember what happens at the middle of the tribulation after three and a half years? Uh, he, he will die and he'll come back to life and then what happens? He establishes himself as God. So he won't need that religious part of Babylon anymore. And he'll do away with that aspect of it. Verse 3. So he carried me away, this angel, carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. And we know who the beast is. That's the Antichrist. Sitting on a scarlet beast. We, we met him back in chapter 13. A scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Don't you love all this imagery? Can you imagine what John is looking at and trying to describe it, trying to figure out how to put that down? Obviously, he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, but in his own thinking, you know, what he's looking at, can you imagine? He's carried away by this Spirit into the wilderness. He sees this woman, which is the religious system that's sitting on the scarlet beast. That's the Antichrist. Uh, and the fact that uh, this woman is sitting on the beast indicates that this religious system is the religious system of the end times. And politics and religion have become so married together at this point that you can't, you can't tell the difference in the two. Verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet. And notice how she's arrayed. This is the woman. This is the religious system that's riding the beast to power. He's using this religious system to seize the power to seduce the nations to come under ultimately to come under his control and how is this religious system dressed in purple and scarlet 
and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. So let me just stop here and let me say something practical. I'm not opposed to vestments. I'm not opposed to some of the things that are used in more formal type worship, more formal type churches. But when I read this, I think to myself, I really don't want to be a part of that any more than I have to be. Um, you know, the, the, where you're wearing the colors of and the look of this religious system that's not the system of God. I mean, sometimes those uh, ceremonial things can become so confused that they, uh, they diminish the gospel itself. But when you see, this, you see this woman riding this beast dressed in this purple and scar scarlet with gold and precious stones and pearls, she, she's dressed in this traditional colors of religion. The traditional colors of religion. Now, as I've already said to you, I don't believe this is Rome. I believe this is Babylon, and I'll, I'll point that out to you in a moment. Babylon rebuilt on the Euphrates River. I'll show you why in a, in a few moments. But when you think of a religious system, you think of Catholicism automatically. By the way, why do they call it? Why would you think they would confuse Rome? Because it's a city on seven hills. And in a few minutes, you're going to read about seven hills. But when you think of the, the, the Catholic Church, you think about all their vestments, you think about all of their ceremony, you think about all their colors, you think about all that, uh, that goes on around it. Well, apparently this religious system of the end time is going to have uh, something that's very similar, vestments that look very similar to that. It says, in the harlot's hand was a golden cup, as if it were extended to those who would drink of her abominations in the filthiness of her fornications. In other words, she's inviting people to come into this false church and into this false religion with her. Verse 5, and on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. You see, she spawns others that are like her. The mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Uh, not, not very favorable terminology, would you say? Historians tell us that harlots in the Roman Empire wore their names on their foreheads. That's what this harlot is doing. That's what John would have been trying to communicate to us. She's a harlot. She's seducing others into this false religious system. She's unashamed of her departure from the truth and her practice of religious idolatry. She's intoxicated millions with her rituals. She's preventing them from knowing the truth of Christ's salvation. She's working alongside of the Antichrist as he's coming to power in the first uh, three and a half years. And all of this is said to be a mystery meaning that until God revealed these facts about her, no one knew these things. But now you know them. Verse 6, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of saints. Another reason why some think of the Catholic Church in Rome being the center of that uh, apostate religion. Uh, the, the things that the Catholic Church has done through the centuries in killing people. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. False religion has always hated the truth of the gospel and has persecuted and killed God's people. 
matter of fact, as I was uh, just rereading this uh, today, this afternoon, I was thinking about my message this morning and something that I didn't say. You know, I had in my mind to say it, and God sort of removed it. When God takes it out, then he doesn't want it said at that particular moment, but maybe he wants it said tonight. It says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God's profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why would you think that Satan wants to attack and diminish uh, the Word of God? Well, the answer is right before that. In verses 14 and 15, but you must continue in the things which you've learned. He's talking to Timothy now. Continue in the things which you've learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Why is Satan so intent on destroying the authority of the Word of God? Because when you destroy the authority of, of the Word of God, you, you steal the souls of men and women. And he wants to damn as many souls to hell as he can, right? And, and here's the same idea. Here's what's going on. This false religion is seducing all of these others of the, of the nations to come under her authority, uh, to go through these ceremonies and these rituals that are only a part of the Antichrist rising to power, and she's doing it all in order to diminish from the truth of Jesus. And so she's drunk. And she's, uh, she's drunk on the blood of saints. She's, she has the blood of martyrs. She has the blood of the martyrs of Jesus on her hands. This false religion will be barbarous. I mean, it's, it's the custom of drinking blood of the enemies that were slain in revenge. That's a picture that he's drawing for you. It's, it's barbarous, it's evil, it's wicked. It's not a pretty picture. So how does the Antichrist come to power? Well, he comes as a peacemaker. He comes politically to offer solutions. And he uses religion, false religion, to seduce the nations and seduce people to come under his authority. And little by little, he's taking increasing amounts of authority until you get three and a half years in. And suddenly, as we learned earlier, he dies. He's raised from the dead. And then he establishes himself, as I've said, as God. Verses 7 and 8. We get a further explanation of this woman and the beast. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Fortunately, you have me to tell you. I've already told you these things, right? Now he's going to explain it for you, and he'll do it under the inspiration of the Spirit. The beast that you saw was and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. Who, who, who is it that in the middle of the tribulation dies and comes again, and who came out of the bottomless pit and who's going to end up in perdition? Who is it? It's the Antichrist, right? And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life and the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not, and yet is. He explains here the origin of the beast as being the bottomless pit. And as been noted in Revelation 3, 13, 1 and 17.3, the beast is the antichrist of the tribulation. The woman is the false religion. And he's using it to his own advantage to gain power. 
Closely associated with the beast will be a harlot religion that the Antichrist will utilize in his rise to power. The two will work together to subdue the hearts and minds of men and women. Wow. Verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains. There it is, seven mountains. What city is known as being on seven hills? Rome. That's another reason some people think the city that we're talking about, Babylon, has to be Rome, but you're going to see differently here in a minute, I hope. Are seven mountains on which the woman sits. The discovery of these matters, he says, will take more than human intellect. It's going to require the mind which has wisdom. Aren't you thankful God gave us his word so that we could have wisdom? It seems to make that sense to many that if there's going to be a revived Roman Empire and the Antichrist is supposed to rule in the succession of previous Roman rulers, that the logical place for it is in Rome. But I want you to think a little differently for a minute, if you will. There's some reasons why I don't believe this is Rome. Though Rome is sort of a picture of what this system might look like, how they might dress, the ceremonies they might go through, I don't think it's Rome for at least five reasons. Number one, Rome would have been familiar to the first century readers uh, that they would not have needed the mind which, was, which, which has wisdom to discern its location. You follow what I'm saying? They wouldn't have needed the wisdom that's coming from God to be able to discern that this is Rome. They would have known where Rome was. They would have known the story of Rome. Second, the Bible seems to indicate that the actual city of Babylon is to be totally destroyed. In Isaiah 13, Jeremiah 51, it seems like the city has to be totally destroyed and then to be rebuilt. Babylon itself, the literal Babylon, to be destroyed and be rebuilt. A third reason is that the nature of Babylon's destruction is described in the next chapter, chapter 18, requires, it requires a rebuilt city. Fourth, the interpretation of the seven mountains is that they are seven kings and nothing more. You're going to see that in a moment. Seven kings and nothing more. Mountains are sometimes used metaphorically to speak of rule, of rule or power. Number five, five prominent world powers have existed. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. John was living under the Roman Empire. That's six. Antichrist begins at the beginning of the tribulation, that's seven. He dies and comes back to life and establishes something altogether unique, that's eight. The beast is also the eighth king. He was the seventh who becomes the eighth, or his kingdom, if you will, was of the seven. Do you follow what I'm saying? And so those are reasons why, in my estimation, though I'm not going to argue with them, if you come after service, I've been here for two hours already, so I'm, I'm not going to argue with you about whether it's Rome or whether it's Babylon, but I believe it's Babylon, and I, those are some of the reasons I believe it's Babylon. Rebuilt Babylon, a Roman empire that's centered in Babylon. Verse 10, there are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has yet to come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. Remember that, short time. In addition to the seven heads, possibly representing the seven mountains, they also represent seven kings or rulers who had governed. The one that is, is Domitian. That's in the Roman Empire. 
during the time that John is alive. The five that are fallen were former, though not concurrent, rulers of the Roman Empire. And the king that has not yet come is the Antichrist who will rule for only a short time. His reign will be seven years of tribulation, of which three and a half are a ruthless dictatorship. And so those seven uh, mountains can be seven kings. Again, that's the picture that he's drawing. He's trying to help you to identify who he's talking about. Verse 11, and the beast that was, who's the beast? It's the Antichrist. And the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven. So there's seven rulers. One of those seven rulers is going to be the Antichrist. He was and is not, and he becomes the what? He becomes the eighth. He, he was one of the six. He was one of the seven, excuse me, and he becomes the eighth. So in both of these illustrations, whether mountains or kings, uh, he's talking about a rebuilt Babylon where there's going to be a world ruler using religion to seduce others under his authority and his power. And he's going to be a part of those seven, and he'll end up being the eighth because he dies in the middle of the tribulation. He gets resurrected, and the result is that uh, that becomes the eighth kingdom, the kingdom of a despot. Verse 12. Whew, are you all with me? Are y'all you still understanding? It's when you get the book, I give it to you for a special price. <clears throat> you can read through all of these notes and things that I'm not telling you. You can read through them for yourself. In verse 12, in the ten horns, now we go from the seven hills in, in the seven kings, two images of the kingdoms of which the Antichrist is a part, or the kings of which the Antichrist is a part. Now we move uh, to the beast, and the beast is, um, or excuse me, the ten horns. In verse 12, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. Now, these ten horns represent the ten kings of the confederacy of nations that will align themselves during the first half of the tribulation under the Antichrist. Some, some people believe it's the European Union. Maybe, maybe. It could be. It seems to me it has to be some kind of European uh, uh, confederacy of nations, but there's going to be ten of them. Verse 13, these are of one mind. These ten, these ten horns that are ten kings that are going to give their authority for a short time to the beast, the Antichrist, they're all of one mind. They all think the same way, the same thing. They will give their power and authority to the beast, and these will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Now, there's a lot to be said about there's a lot to be said about uh, these ten kings. Um, but we can watch and we can see how nations come together to work with one another. Um, and they give their authority to the beast and they get their authority from the beast, but it's only for a short time. And the result is that there's a world rule that grows out of it. It's going to be a terrible time. Verse 15, and he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits. Who's the harlot? 
It's the false religion of the Antichrist where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. In other words, this false religion, this political religious system that brings the Antichrist to power is is ecumenical in nature. It's ecumenical in this end-time religion. Her outreach will be worldwide. There will be congregations and followers in every part of the world. Which is one reason why some people believe it has to be Rome and the Catholic Church because they've already got that, the outpost everywhere. Uh, again, I think it's Babylon personally. And there'll be something different by way of a religious system, but it looks very much like Rome. Verse 16. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot. Wait a minute. The ten horns that gave their power to the Antichrist and the Antichrist gave power back to them, these ten kingdoms that came together, these ten nations, this confederacy of nations, they're going to turn on the woman who's riding the beast. They're going to turn on this religious system. Yep. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. What a pretty symbol. It's awful. It's ugly. They won't need her, will they? Once the Antichrist um, establishes himself as God, they they won't need her anymore. Verse 17, for God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose. Now I want you to see who's working all of this Who's behind the scenes, sovereign over everything that's happening? For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give his kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Now, just stop there for a moment. Let's just sort of make it practical if we can before we read the last verse. Are you all with me? Are you still with me? Uh, we uh, are talking about how the Antichrist comes to power, a political system, a religious system. Uh, it involves seven nations. It involves seven kings, of which the Antichrist is a part of both of them. And he comes out of those to become the eighth nation, the eighth king, if you will. Uh, he's, he's behind all of this that's unfolding. Of course, Satan is behind all of that. This religious system is seducing the the nations of the world and the people of the world to come under its authority. And there's these ten kings, this confederacy of nations that are working together. They've given their authority to to the uh, Antichrist, and they receive authority back from the Antichrist. And those ten nations will turn on this religious system. They'll destroy this religious system. And the Antichrist will become God, demanding to be worshipped, You can't buy or sell without uh, the mark of the beast. Uh, And and you'll have to follow that religious system. By the way, do you you recognize that people are inherently religious by nature? When I say religious, I mean they have a a God-shaped vacuum in their lives. Everybody has that. We all know that we need someone greater than ourselves in our lives. Amen? Amen. People don't want to acknowledge that, but that's the reality. And behind all of it, God is at work. Now, when I read those words that God put in their hearts to fulfill his purpose uh, until the words of God are fulfilled, I I look at our world today, and uh, I don't like what I see. By the way, today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. I didn't say anything about it this morning. 
We're going to finish this service praying for our nation that we can bring an end to Roe versus Wade and that we can turn back the killing of literally millions upon millions of innocent lives. This is, this is not a matter of, I'm off subject altogether. <laughs> this is not a matter of, uh, of a woman controlling her body. This is not a matter of uh, you know, the things that they tell you it is. This is, this is a life that's growing within that mother, a life that should be protected. And we should, pray, we should protect lives that are inside the mother's womb. We should protect the lives of children outside. We should care about the lives of, of the children outside a mother's womb. All of these children matter. Um, but what is encouraging to me when I read verse 17 is that God's in control. I don't like everything that's coming out of Washington. Matter of fact, I don't like much of anything that's coming out of Washington. Unless it's one of the interstates. That's about the only thing I like coming out of Washington. I, I don't like much of what I see or much of what I hear. I, I don't have... I don't have good feelings about any of it. And I pray all the times. People say, pray for, you know, Nathan wrote about praying for people in leadership. I pray for people in leadership. But sometimes when I pray for people in leadership, I pray against them. I say, Lord, please stop them. Please, oh God, stop them. Please don't let them make that decision. Please change their minds. Sometimes my prayer is for God to turn their hearts to something else in, in another direction. But ultimately, whether God does what I ask him to do or whether they carry through and do what they're going to do anyway, ultimately, behind the scenes, there is the sovereign hand of the Almighty God. And he is always at work bringing about his purposes and the accomplishing of his will. And that alone, in modern, our modern day, gives me a sense of peace. That while it seems out of control to me and seems crazy to me, that God knows exactly what he's doing. And he's taking us to exactly where we need to be for him to do what he's going to do. Which I hope is the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ to rise. But whether it's going to be in the next year the next day, the next month, the next year, or 10 years, or 100 years, behind the scenes, God is at work, even in the tribulation, when it seems like everything is out of control. And every, can you imagine all the catastrophic things that are happening everywhere around the globe, and all the things that are unfolding, and the, the news people that are trying to cover all of these different things? Can you imagine the, the fear that will strike people's hearts, and we read about it, and we wonder, how can a world be so much out of control? But verse 17 says it's not out of control. It's fulfilling exactly what God intended to occur. God's got to get us to where we need to be for God to do what he's going to do. He had to get Israel to where they needed to be in Egypt so that he could do what he's going to do 430 years later and setting them free and taking them through the Red Sea and feeding them in the morning with, with manna and quail in the evening and water out of the rock. God had to get them where they needed to be so that he could do what he was going to do. I don't always understand it, but if I understood it, then I'd be God, wouldn't I? 
God's thoughts are not my thoughts and God's ways are not my ways, but I can tell you that there's nothing outside of the control of God. Even in the tribulation when everything, a religious political system that looks like Rome, I think it's going to be something new in Babylon, something like Rome but in Babylon, the literal city along the Euphrates River, you're watching, we're not going to be here to see it, but you're watching that unfold. And you say, what in the world is happening? And we know that God's at work. Even in the nations, the ten nations that come together as a confederacy, do you know who's working behind the scenes to bring those nations together and to get them aligned so that they will give their authority to the beast and ultimately to kill off this false religion? Do you know who's working behind the scenes to accomplish his will? It's God who's at work. He is sovereign over it all. He puts one up, and he takes another down. Um, And sometimes you just have to say, Lord, I don't understand it, but I trust you in spite of it. Amen? Lord, Lord, I trust you in spite of it. Verse 18. And the woman whom you saw in that great city, who's the woman? That's false religion. Who's she married to in writing? the beast, the antichrist. What city is all of this taking place? This religious, political, it's Babylon, either a code word for Rome or the rebuilt city of Babylon with a confederacy of nations that comes together to help him. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. John reminded the readers of Revelation that this is mystery Babylon. Another reason I don't think it's Rome. It's mystery Babylon. It's more than just a system. It's also a great city. And this city has power both governmentally and religiously over the kings of the earth. When we get to chapter 18, we will see it as an economic system, a governmental economic system that works uh, during the tribulation period. 